Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics, podcast released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we are looking at Speedball's kinetic field. So, first of all, who is Speedball? Well, Speedball is a character that first appeared in Marvel Comics in 1988. He first showed up in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 22, but then he had a 10-issue series intended to be an ongoing series, and Steve Ditko was the driving creator. If you go back to that original series, it's very clear that they were trying to recapture some of that magic that they had with the original release of Spider-Man. There are a few similarities in the character in terms of the tone and in terms of the structure of the stories, right back to having most of those 10 issues split into two stories each, which were, again, one-and-done stories. So it was a throwback to classic issues, and fortunately a lot of the dialogue felt like 60s dialogue. So that series only lasted about 10 issues, as I said, but the character was then picked up and joined the New Warriors. When the Civil War event kicked off, Speedball was a major part in terms of the catalyst of the event. As a result of that, he became Penance for a while. He is now back to being Speedball. Here we are focusing solely on the Speedball power set. So what is that? Well, if we go back to his origin story, which was actually the second story in that first issue of his own title, we see that it really starts with Dr. Nicholas Benson and his team of scientists who are looking to tap sources of extra-dimensional energy. They manage to succeed and tap that energy, but they can't control the energy flow. Instead of just having a continuous stream of energy from anode to cathode in their equipment, it ended up going out of control, bouncing off walls, and eventually bounces out of the room, covering part-time janitor and high school student Robbie Baldwin, as well as Dr. Benson's cat Niels. And that's when Robbie Baldwin develops the abilities of Speedball. So the goggles he was wearing are transformed into his mask, his hair starts to go crazy and wild, his overalls became his suit, which is why for a long time he couldn't change his costume. It was just a part of him. And he was surrounded by what he calls bubbles of glowing energy anytime the Speedball field or the Speedball effect is active. And it can be active or inactive. He eventually did learn to control whether or not he was in the speedball form. It used to be that any bumper impact would turn him into speedball. And when he gets hit in this form, or when he bounces off things, his kinetic energy actually increases, as does his momentum. So if he's bouncing up and down in one spot, he will bounce higher and higher every time. And those bubbles that are part of his field do have substance. So he's been able to jam his arm into a slot in a closed door, bounce it up and down until the bubble pressure is enough to break the door. Similarly, when Mr. Fantastic tried to contain him in, I believe it was Fantastic Four 356, he was bouncing around inside and the pressure just built up to the point where Mr. Fantastic had to let him go. When his powers were stolen by Gideon, we saw that Gideon was actually able to control the bubbles and he had a couple of them orbiting around him in a circular fashion. There's actually two different circles at 45 degree angles, you know, like those inaccurate cartoons of the atom that you see so often. So there is a lot of conscious control that can be applied to the bubbles in the field. Uh, we also have seen in that original New Warriors series that when he's in a speedball form, even though Robbie doesn't deliberately do so because of the pain involved, he actually can be twisted and bent like a rubber band. So there is quite a physiological change that goes with it. But the key we're going to be focusing on here is the bouncing and the increasing kinetic energy and momentum. So, can we increase kinetic energy on a regular basis? Well, we've got conservation laws in our universe that say that the total energy of the system is conserved. And this is of any isolated system, meaning if you've got it sealed off. So, the Earth, for example, is not an isolated system because we are constantly getting energy from the sun and then radiating energy out as heat. 
but there are two major kinds of what we call mechanical energy. There's the kinetic energy of motion, and there's also the potential energy, which is energy that is somehow stored, such as chemical energy in a battery or your gravitational potential energy when you're at the top of a tall building. So looking at these conservation laws, is there any way for Speedball's kinetic field to increase his kinetic energy without violating the conservation of energy? Well, if we have to increase your kinetic energy, then we've got to get that energy from somewhere. So in an isolated system, if you start with a total of a thousand joules of energy, you end with a total of a thousand joules of energy no matter what. Now you can convert it back and forth. So the easy way to increase speedball's kinetic energy is to pull that energy from somewhere else where it is stored as potential energy. And if we look at the way speedball's been treated, there is no clear source of potential energy that applies in all cases to compensate for this. If the thing punches him, he bounces back faster than he was coming in. If he bounces off a wall, he comes off faster, which he does eventually do. He learns enough control that he'll bounce off walls repeatedly before hitting the enemy with even more energy and momentum. So does this mean that Speedball's kinetic field as we see it is impossible? Well, let's take a look at the history of the conservation laws, because the laws of physics are not always laws. Sometimes they're just labels we give things that have held up to every experiment so far. But just as Einstein and his theory of relativity replaced some of Newton's laws, since we already saw that they were on shaky ground, we may find that there's an issue with the conservation laws. So let's look at that history. How did we come up with those? To be fair to Newton, he didn't have access to the technology that would ultimately expose the limitations of his work. Well, the conservation laws were first taken as axioms in 1691. An axiom is an unproven idea. It's not something we can derive from scratch. It's not a result of the math within the theory. Instead, it's just something we have spliced onto the theory because it's consistent with all experiments. Uh, another example of this is the connection between electricity and magnetism before the theory of relativity. Prior to that, we knew there was a connection between electricity and magnetism because Hans Christian Orsted didn't put his equipment away, turned on a circuit when he still had a compass lying around, and noticed the needle deflected. So then that connection was grafted onto the theory because we saw it in experiments and not because the theory appeared to require it at the time. With the theory of relativity in place, we now understand the connection between them. But conservation of energy and momentum were first discovered by René Descartes and Gottfried Leibniz. And yes, this is the same René Descartes that is best known for his philosophy, I think, therefore I am. He's also the namesake for the Cartesian coordinate system, which is the coordinate system most of us are used to, where we give x, y, and z coordinates to various points. And his collaborator in this was Gottfried Leibniz. He is the guy who invented calculus independent of Newton, but doesn't get a lot of credit for invention of calculus because Newton published first, even though Leibniz had clearly superior notation. And it's his notation that's used today, and especially in vector calculus. So Newton's notation of primes and dots for derivatives simply doesn't work for multiple spatial dimensions. So physicists and mathematicians will always prefer to have fewer axioms in their system, because every time we have an axiom or an idea that's just grafted on because it seems to fit, then we're running into the possibility that we may find it doesn't actually fit, and then anything based on that axiom will just collapse under its own weight. So if you were to build a physical system or a model of the physical system on, say, six axioms, that's like trying to build a building with six load-bearing members. But you have no way of knowing whether each of those load-bearing members can handle the load. And if one of them collapses, you may or may not be able to rebuild the building as it was before that collapse. 
But if you can prove that one of those load-bearing members is redundant or equivalent to the rest, well, that actually reduces the stress on the system. Because as a load-bearing member, each axiom can support unlimited weight as long as it's a valid axiom. So if we can prove that one of these load-bearing members is actually a consequence of some other axiom, well, then that other axiom will be able to support everything that they're doing. So if you can often try and prove that things are at least consistent or what they call equivalent. So you can have four different ideas in place and often will at least try to prove that, you know, if one is true, then all four of them are true. And it doesn't matter which one is true. So we prove it forms a consistent system. If you got one, you've got all four. In which case that, you know, gives a lot more credence to it and it lends that support. Then you only have to show that one of them can be derived from first principles and everything else follows. Now, there were some scientists, notably including Niels Bohr, who tried to build a system without the axioms of the conservation laws, and that would eliminate the dependence on them to make sure that the system is more solid, just in case those conservation laws didn't pan out. Well, a lot of headway was made in this area in 1915 and 1918, which are the two years that Emmy Noether published what is now known as Noether's Theorem. And Noether's Theorem shows that if you have a certain type of symmetry, then you must have a matching conservation law. And there are different types of symmetry in nature. One of them is rotational symmetry. So what that means is that the laws of physics don't depend on which way your coordinate system is pointing. Now, there are cases where there's a certain direction to the coordinate system that makes the math quite a bit easier, such as the infamous box on a ramp problems. Believe it or not, it actually does make the problem easier if you angle your coordinates to be parallel and perpendicular to the ramp. Or more commonly, we can still navigate the surface of the Earth and talk about physics, regardless of whether we're considering north the geographic north pole or whether we consider north the magnetic north pole. Either of those are valid north poles. We get the same laws of physics, we just end up with slightly different directions as we've rotated the system. And that rotational symmetry that we have is actually equivalent to having a conservation of angular momentum. Similarly, we have what we call translational symmetries. So translational symmetries mean we can put our coordinate system anywhere along a particular direction. So in practical terms, that means if you're in a lab measuring things, you can consider the zero distance or the origin to be any point on the lab bench or any lab bench. So you can have 10 different students working on 10 different apparatus doing the same lab on 10 different lab benches. Each of them says that the origin of the coordinate system is at a certain point on their apparatus and they all end up getting the same results, because the laws of physics don't matter as far as translation is concerned. We also have translation in time. So when we're all doing our trials there, we can start the stopwatch anytime we want, and that doesn't impact the laws of physics. Now, we may need to do it at a certain point within the experiment, right? For example, if you're doing a pendulum swing, you want to start the stopwatch at a certain point in the swing, but it doesn't matter when that pendulum starts swinging. So the different lab groups in their lab can be out of sync when they're doing their equipment and their data collection, but they will still get the same results if they're doing it effectively. That's translation through time. And those translation symmetries are what ultimately leads to the conservation laws. So that translational symmetry in time is what leads to conservation of energy, and that translational symmetry in position is what leads to conservation of momentum. And that's what Emmy Noether proved. So as long as we don't have a preferred starting point in time or space, we will have conservation of energy momentum. We can also have reflective symmetries, meaning 
if we can say that the positive x-axis is going to the right and the positive y-axis is going up, and we get the same physics if we reverse those directions. So we reverse up, down, reverse left, right, reverse forward, back. As long as we reverse all three, we see no difference in the laws of physics. Again, we just have some slightly more or less convenient numbers, as we'll get negative numbers popping up in different places. We also have a covariant symmetry, meaning we can use the Cartesian coordinates, x, y, z, we mentioned before, polar cylindrical coordinates, spherical coordinates, elliptical hyperbolic coordinates. We've got a variety of coordinate systems available. So all of these symmetries that we have lead to different conservation laws in nature. And when this came up, Niels Bohr, who was again one of the guys who was not entirely convinced that conservation of energy had to be a principle in terms of the universe and the construction of the universe, he started talking about the possibilities of looking at parallel dimensions and extra-dimensional energy that way. Because if we were able to pull energy from another universe, well then our universe is no longer an isolated system. So we would be able to increase or decrease the energy of the universe by pumping it in or out of other dimensions. Going back to speedball number one, that's what the scientists are trying to do, was draw energy from a parallel dimension. And the fact that probably the most well-respected physicist who is discussing that very idea was Niels Bohr, and that the scientist in charge of this experiment named his cat Niels, probably not a coincidence. So let's take a look at what other effects that we have from speedball. So he increases kinetic energy when he bounces off walls, which may be possible if he's tapping extra-dimensional energy from other sources. And the way that it's described in the Marvel Universe, that's exactly what he's doing, is tapping extra-dimensional energy. So he's pulling that energy from a parallel dimension. That's how the whole thing started. So that part kind of works. What about the other parts? When he's turned into speedball, he doesn't just change his outfit and have his voice automatically disguised because that changes, presumably because the speedball effect is also affecting his vocal cords as they vibrate back and forth. But it will also allows him to gain height, and he seems to gain what we refer to as weight. Now, weight is the force of gravity applied to you. It's typically related to mass. So can his mass increase as we go through? Well, looking at the general theory of relativity, that may actually be possible. So mass is also a conserved quantity, although when we get into the theory of relativity, we discover that some of these conservation laws don't work quite as well as we thought because some of the symmetries that we had break down. So these symmetries that we have that apply to Noether's theorem are symmetries as you're looking at the slope of equations. And Einstein's relativity showed that because time is just another dimension along with position, even if it has some slightly different properties, we get some interplay between the variables. And that's actually necessary because of the light speed limit that we see in nature. So position and time are actually related quantities. So they're different parts of the same thing. Similarly, we find that momentum and energy are different parts of the same thing, and those actually combine. Energy is also related to mass or inertia. So inertia is the resistance to motion. If you have more inertia, it takes more energy and more effort to change your momentum or to change your speed. If we go back to Newton's laws, he properly phrased everything in terms of inertia, not mass. He later proposed that mass was inertia. There are some slight differences that have come into play, but everything in terms of the laws of motion relate to your inertia. And actually the effect of gravity on a body also relates to its inertia and to its energy. So if you've got something that has a low mass, mass meaning the amount of stuff you're made out of, it doesn't have the same impact or doesn't feel the same impact from gravity as something with a higher mass. Even though they accelerate at the same rate, the higher mass ends up gaining more momentum because it has more potential energy. It has more kinetic energy in the end. 
So is there a way for this extra dimensional energy to increase the mass of speedball as we perceive it? Well, let's take a look at what mass is. If we think of mass as the amount of stuff we are made out of, then you could take it down to the level of an individual particle. We can look at electrons, protons, neutrons in the nucleus and measure their masses. And we've done that. But with protons and neutrons, we actually find that they're made up of three quarks. The mass of the proton or the neutron is actually significantly higher than the measured mass of those three quarks combined. And by significantly higher, I'm not talking 10 or 15%. I'm talking about multiples of that mass. So if it's a significant proportion higher, well, then why does the proton seem to have so much more mass than the things it's made out of? And that is because mass is directly related to energy and inertia. So these particles have energy when they are trapped within each other. So these quarks have a certain amount of what we call binding energy. There's an energy that holds them together. And that energy is perceived as mass by all of the kinematic and gravitational tests that we can put it through. So we see the mass of the proton, which is actually the mass of the quarks and the energy required to bind them together. So when Robbie Baldwin kicks in that speedball effect and gains mass, this could be a case of that restructuring in the physiology. Because we've seen that he can be stretched and twisted like a rubber band, even if it is very painful for him, well, that's an indication of changing physiology. So his body is restructuring itself to allow for that elastic process to happen. And if you look at what it takes to have an elastic process, that tells you that requires more binding energy within the molecules. So in order to have that physiological change that allows him to bounce and to move like that, we actually have to put more energy into his body. So not only is an increase in mass possible, an increase in mass is required to produce the kind of physics effects that we see in the comic. It's required for consistency. So all we're left with now is figuring out, is it possible for him to tap this extra dimensional energy? How easy is it to break down the barriers between worlds? Well, in our world, it's pretty darn hard. We've actually done the calculations in terms of the energy required to warp space, which is you know traveling faster than light as they do in Star Trek, to reach out through the fabric of space-time into another part of our universe or into a parallel universe. In our world, that requires more energy than we can account for. So if we add up all the energy we can account for in the entire universe, that's not enough to do the job. But that's something that may depend on the universe itself. The question is, does the Marvel Universe of Earth-616 require more or less energy to break through the walls? Now, looking at the comic book pages, there's a long and wide history of people moving between parallel dimensions. So clearly, the walls between the universes don't require as much energy to break out of in the 616 universe. In fact, as those reading Spider-Man comics these days know, it's pretty shocking easy. So looking at Speedball's kinetic field, tapping this extra-dimensional energy source is possible in the context of the Marvel 616 universe, even if it isn't in ours. And once that's laid in, Speedball's powers actually would come out as presented. So that wraps up what we have to say about Speedball's kinetic field. We will always take suggestions for future podcasts, as well as any other feedback at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Feel free to leave reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, according to where you're listening to this. You can also follow us directly with the RSS feed. And until the last Wednesday of next month, thank you for listening.